0: For me, fashion is a verb, so it's to fashion.
1: My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis.
0: I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things.
1: You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before... Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a sole and minimize
0: the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value?
1: Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style.
0: Hello
1: everyone, how are you this week? I'm actually in a bit of a hurry because tomorrow I'm going up to the Barrier Reef to check on the health of the coral up there. We're going to make an amazing show about that. But. It's not just because I want to be quick with the intro this week that I'm going to keep it short. It's because our guest is the Canadian architect, Jason McLennan. He's the founder of the Living Building Challenge. And he says this thing at the end of our interview. It's like advice on how we can make change and dare to release our ideas into the world. And when I played it back, I thought, actually, this should be the intro. I should let him do the intro. (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. We will share some links so you can read all about Jason's extraordinary work and that of the Living Future Institute that he founded and the revolutionary ideas that we discuss about how we can not just green our built environment, but totally rethink it so that it's regenerative, so it provides havens for animals and biodiversity. It's all about like really living in harmony with nature. Or as Jason puts it, Creating places that are not only lovely, but express the love we have for people, for animals, and for the environment, too. It's not the sort of idea you normally hear from an architect, or a fashion designer, or anyone in business, is it? Well.
0: I have a whole philosophy that I'll share with you if you want. Oh, yeah? I've written about it in a book called Sukunru, and I call it my three-quarter baked philosophy. So the world is filled with half-baked ideas. We don't need any more of those. But too many people in the world try to wait till their ideas are fully baked before they get it out, and they therefore produce nothing. And so, what I believe in wholeheartedly is in an obligation we have to put our our ideas out in the world three quarter baked. And by three quarter baked, it's kind of like you know, when you take the cookies out of the oven and they're still gooey and they're really good like that there's magic there because what you're basically saying when you take it out of the oven is you're letting the universe finish baking it and so your gift is to get an idea out three-quarter baked and not be selfish or perfectionist to the point where you think that you have the ability to perfect something because you don't but you have a gift to give by putting an idea out and let others criticize it let others shape it And then magic happens. And that willingness to put things out in the universe is at the core of my whole belief system. Put it out and then detach from it. That's the key though. People are so afraid of failure. They're so afraid of people saying that they're wrong, that nothing happens. And the key is to be okay with being wrong, to be okay with failing, and to let others help perfect your idea because they're not your ideas. They're ideas that came through you and we are there to be sort of a vessel, if you will, to get them out.
1: Didn't you just love that? If you're inspired by what you hear, please do share on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. I'd love it if you share it on Facebook too. You can find me there at Wardrobe Crisis. And a quick thank you to our new patron supporters. You've made my day. Now, let's start from the top. Jason McLennan, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast and thank you for agreeing to do this very last minute on your visit to Sydney. My pleasure. You've been walking all around the city, what have you seen?
0: I've been walking everywhere. I have seen everything in the city, the entire city, every block, every building I visited.
1: But I ask you that, obviously you haven't, but I ask (laughs) you that because I think in your game it must be quite fascinating to look up and look around in cities.
0: Yeah, I like to figure out how a city ticks And what makes it unique, every city has its own signature.
1: We're going to get into a bit more about what might make the future of cities tick. But Jason, I met you on Friday at something called the Living Future Symposium. Yes. What is it? What's it all about? Share that with us.
0: I created an organisation in the United States Many years ago now, called the Living Future Institute, and its tagline is uh, creating a world that is socially just, culturally rich, and ecologically restorative. And the idea is that we need to transform pretty much everything in civilization to move towards
1: <laughs> just a small idea just a then. small idea like, that sounds eminently reasonable yes and then you're like, the yes. idea is transform well why work everything. on a small
0: idea look I don't understand that let's put everything into a small idea no it's really yeah the idea that we need to rethink everything
1: okay I want to just begin before we unpack that by zipping through some terms that I think some listeners they might be new for I they were new for me in a recent interview with you, Jason, it was from 2018, it's for a journal called Design Intelligence Quarterly. Mm. You were asked what regenerative design looked like when you started out, and you pretty much said it wasn't in existence. But That's what right. what is regenerative design?
0: Well, it's, a, it's an idea whose time has come. Uh, regenerative design is really this notion that we need to move towards solutions that are not merely less bad, but actually good. We need to move towards solutions that are not minimizing our footprint, which is something probably people have heard, and actually moving towards healing and restoring and regenerating the world. So it's actually more of a, a concept of, of bringing life back to the planet. Mm-hmm. And that is clearly where we need to head. It's not, it's not enough to just recycle or reduce what your you know harm is in the world we actually have to be agents of of regeneration of positive change
1: it's funny that it has taken so long for such a thing to catch on because it's a sticking plaster, isn't it to say let's make it a little bit less terrible i mean that's not a very great thing to aim for i'm no. thinking about i interviewed um william mcdonough on this yeah. podcast we'll share a link but he talks about that he whole does idea.
0: yeah we're you uh, must like him i yeah we've known each other for years he and i and i think we tend to think similar about the state of the world and what needs to happen, and we're both architects. Um.
1: (laughs) In that interview that I mentioned, you said that in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the ideas of green architecture or eco or just sustainable architecture were kind of put in place by two organizations. One was LEED and one was just from a U.S. perspective, the Green Building Council. What's LEED?
0: LEED, over here you have Green Star, which is a rating system used to evaluate buildings and their impact on the environment. And LEED uh, is basically very similar to Green Star. It uh, came along before Green Star, actually. It stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It was created and uh, launched by the U.S. Green Building Council. And uh, it's kind of in the U.S. and Canada and, and a few other countries. It's kind of the de facto sort of benchmark for basic green performance if you will
1: is it less bad stuff or is it it, is yeah Yeah,
0: it is it's really about moving the market from where it is to a slightly better place um, which is the right direction we just don't have the luxury of going slow anymore
1: Okay. The best place would surely be biophilic design. And that's a phrase <laughs> I only just learned I literally, it's a, cool word, a few huh? weeks ago. And <laughs> I thought, oh, when I caught onto this, I was like, obviously everyone knows what this is because it's such a brilliant idea. But I literally shared it on Instagram today and everyone was like, what's that? I'm Googling it. So what is it?
0: Well, it's this idea that, that we have this innate need to be around other life forms and that it's the you know, love of life, basically. And uh, E.O. Wilson is a famous scientist and writer. Yeah. And he basically popularized the, the term. And he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning scientist, pretty interesting guy. You should get him on your show.
1: I should. Do you know what? I was just thinking, sorry to be such a name-dropper of people who've been on the show before, but it's good to go back and listen to these episodes. We interviewed the extraordinary Vincent Stanley, who's Director of Philosophy at Patagonia. Mm. And he was the one who told me about E.O. Wilson. Yeah. I love how... By sucking your brain marvelousness out on this podcast, we can all learn more.
0: There's all sorts of great people doing great things.
1: But what does biophilic design look like? What does it mean? Because it's more than just putting plants in a room.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually a new uh, biophilic design is a new discipline um, that looks at answering the question, how do you bring life into cities? How do you bring life into buildings in meaningful ways? And how do you ensure that people are exposed to the natural world in a way that Provides for their health and well-being. It's in many ways about health.
1: But it could be about creating spaces where you're bringing the outdoors in, for example, Absolutely. Or accessing green spaces from easily from a building. Or what does it look like practically?
0: It can look like all sorts of things. Um, I think that it takes many different forms depending on where you are, and you know, in a city, uh, where you are in a building. But in essence, it's bringing whether it's plants, uh, water, sunlight, even. You know, the pet dog, in some instances, it's about bringing life into our lives.
1: You talked about this yesterday. You talked about habitat and this idea that when, as architects try to create wonderful spaces, they should be thinking of habitat not just for the humans that occupy these spaces, but for all diversity in nature. That's correct. Or some of it, anyway. Beyond the dog. But I mean, (laughs) thinking about how these spaces, if we talk about that word regenerative, it's also about how you can make these spaces habitable by nature and creatures other than ourselves right yeah
0: yeah we've done a good job of excluding nature from our lives and yeah with the exception of a few species like dogs that cats and pigeons that you know and rats that have found their way in we don't do a good job of allowing for the habitat of other organisms in our communities and we we've crowded them out and Sterilized our environments, which is why we have to have biophilic design because we're sort of making amends for decades now of excluding life from our cities.
1: Yesterday at the symposium that I just mentioned, you talked about the living building challenge and about the work that the Living Future Institute does. Yes. You also mentioned this guy, Buckminster Filler, who literally is another one of these people I'd never heard of until a couple of weeks ago when someone on this podcast mentioned him. That was in response to a question about activism. It was in the Extinction Rebellion episode. I'd never heard of him. He talked about this interviewee, he about Buckminster Filler and Spaceship Earth. And I thought mm-hmm. he must be some sci fi philosopher. He but kind he was of was. An <laughs> <right>?
0: <laughs> well, he was, a, yes, he was kind of a lot of things. Uh, maybe the. Um, more recently, Leonardo da Vinci of uh, our century. In some ways, he invented the geodesic dome, which people know. And um, he invented a lot of words, like synergy, I think was one of his words. Really? I think so. We checked that one. But he was really ahead of his time, several decades ahead, in terms of really understanding humanity's place on the planet and sort of imagining a future where we needed to create conditions that were healthy for all people through all time. Uh, he's a real, real genius.
1: American, and, based where?
0: Uh, American, um, and uh, practiced all over the place as ideas have traveled all over the world. <laughs> you shared a
1: quote there that you particularly love, and it was,
0: yeah. If you want to change something, you have to make the thing you want to change obsolete, basically. And I interpret that to be that if you want to change something, you have to throw a better party. You have to. You know, invent a better mousetrap and find a way not to use guilt and shame to motivate people but to show them a better way.
1: You talked about those better ways being love as well as regeneration.
0: Well I talk about love quite a bit because in many ways it's what fuels everything that I do and I believe in and the designs that we do is about creating places that that are not only lovely but um, express the love we have for for people, for animals, for For the
1: environment. You also talked when you gave your keynote at yesterday's event about how people thought you were basically crackers when you started talking (laughs) about this stuff. People still do. (laughs) And it it dawns on me that even though it's a beautiful idea and one that I find very persuasive to think about love at the core of an architect's practice, it is a bonkers idea and people must have thought you were completely off-piste ahead of your time or bananas.
0: Yeah, I think probably uh, (laughs) some people did. Um, When I created the Living Building Challenge, it was illegal in every market that I practiced in. Uh, It was uh, incredibly expensive. It was impossible to find the materials that I was basically saying you had to build with. Um, It was not a utopian standard, but pretty close in people's minds. So what what exactly is it? The Living Building Challenge, uh, what I like to say, it's the most stringent green building protocol or philosophy in the world. Um, And it really is the way that you measure whether you've succeeded at building buildings that are that are good for all of life. And uh, we also have a living product challenge, which could apply to fashion. And we have uh, other protocols that that are useful as framing tools.
1: You use the analogy of a flower and say that if we acted more like the flower, then we could create more beauty and more integrity in our work.
0: Yeah, I early on picked um, as sort of the the mascot, if you will, uh, for the program, a flower, you know, a flower or plant has to get all of its energy from the sun, it can't use fossil fuels, it has to be, you know, water independent, has to get all of its water from the rain that it can capture in its root system, it can't build a pipeline from somewhere else. It's habitat for other species. It's it's beautiful.
1: But you didn't just look at the flower and think you don't need fossil foods. You actually used the symbolism of the petal and looked at sure how you might use that format yeah, it, to look at is it six of them The six
0: there's petals? seven petals and uh, yeah i kind of geeked out on the flower thing a little bit i i the program has categories which i call petals and and all the sort of metaphors that we use in our work are biological rather than mechanical mm. And if, if you think about it most of the time we use mechanical we talk about the body as a clock or we talk about machines for living in and and that's kind of gotten us off on the wrong path and so we try to use language to reconnect people to what's important as well, again, which is life. So we use biological metaphors and framing wherever we can.
1: So some of those petals are water, place.
0: Beauty, equity, materials, health and happiness. Equity. Yes.
1: I mean, I love that you include that in this framework.
0: Well, we can't solve the problems that we have to solve, whether it's climate change or habitat loss, pollution writ large, unless we're also dealing with inequities around the world and social injustices around the world, that, that these issues have to be solved simultaneously and together.
1: You mentioned other mechanisms that you've brought into play or designed as part of the work that your institute does and the challenge sets. Yes,
0: just. I worked uh, to develop a a protocol to help businesses transparently share how they're uh, treating their people, basically. Um,
1: so looking at things like diversity and fairness and equity in the workplace.
0: You got it. Yeah, a whole host of issues. How are they doing? Because every day you and I, we go out and we we buy clothing, we buy uh, food, we, we spend money at you know in different places, and we're voting with our dollars, basically. And it would be good to know whether we're doing so in <laughs> accordance would. with our values and are we supporting businesses that are good for you know treating their people well are they supporting gender equity are they supporting animal rights so that you know what are they what are they doing and do they deserve your money so the just label is it's like a nutrition label for social equity
1: but and that you're applying to this whole building and construction industry we with are anyone yeah. dealing with the built environment
0: but people are welcome to use the just system in any business you could use it in fashion you can use there's
1: another one that is even more relevant i think to the current conversation in fashion around supply chains and that's declare
0: declare actually came before just and it was basically because it was an it's the nutrition label for ingredients within building products basically i just
1: love the language because we're so familiar with it when we look (laughs) at a, a food product
0: yeah, well, that's where the idea came from. You know, if you go down the grocery aisle to buy food, and let's say that your child is allergic to peanuts, you need to know if there's peanuts in the package. But then when you go to a store to buy a pillow for your child's room, you probably need to know if it's going to give Drenched your kid cancer. Or, or give them, or yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, you, you need to know. But you can't because all those things are invisible and we're surrounded by furniture and interior products and every you know clothing and everything where we don't really know the chemical constituents within them and their impacts they could be you know, bad allergens. They could be carcinogenic and we're sleeping with them. You know? Oh God, so and we know that yeah. we are. I mean, mattresses yes.
1: drenched in flame retardant That's chemicals. That's correct. Right now we're sitting on some, <laughs> yeah. could be leather, could be faux leather, not sure, swanky chairs in a meeting room. Yeah. We have no idea what chemicals right. we use to produce these That's chairs.
0: Right. So I just got fed up with that and said, well, why hasn't someone created a nutrition label for building materials? And I looked around and said, well, fuck, I'm going to do it.
1: When did you do this?
0: <laughs> um, when did I launch it? It's like 2009, I think.
1: And how did it go down?
0: Um, well, it was sort of like my other ideas where people said, you know, manufacturers are never going to tell you what's in their ingredients. And I said, no, 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 the right ones will. And then we'll drive business to them. And you that also was through, noted yeah. that
1: many of them didn't know. And that, there are so that's many right. parallels with that in the fashion industry.
0: That's right. Or so don't want there's to There's lots know. of people with good intentions, but they hadn't focused on it. And that's the great thing about transparency is it it shines a light on issues and then people wake up. And you can't sort of unsee things, you know.
1: There is another a protocol or um, tool that is in your toolbox, and that is the chemical one, which is called the red list. Now yeah. I'd never heard of that, but you made it up, right?
0: I did. You're um, now working with
1: Google on it. I mean, other companies have adopted this. tons of companies right. are
0: using my red list, and and it's uh, we use it in Declare um, to you know highlight. Basically, the idea is that there are chemicals that really have no safe exposure limit at certain points in their supply chain. So even if it's like safe during its use, it's not safe in the factory, for example, or if it's it's not safe at the end of life when it goes in the landfill, and gets in the water. So there are chemicals that we basically said, you know what, we need to just get them out of the supply stream. So there's just the worst offensive stuff. So then I reached out to different toxicologists and experts to say, let's make a red list and put it out there. And that was really hard, but it's caused really great positive ripples in the building supply chain industry where people are reformulating their products because of the Red List. And and Google and other big companies have adopted the Red List as a procurement sort of lens to say, yeah, we don't want any of this stuff in our buildings. And because of that, manufacturers have
1: responded. Okay, you're saying let's build buildings that are regenerative and that don't use... Obvious nasties in their construction or in their interiors fine, but it's more than that it's much much more than that isn't it yeah we what can't we don't want them like? to
0: use we don't want them to use fossil fuels, so all the energy has to be with renewable energy so Most of the buildings have solar panels on their roof and they're not using fossil fuels for anything, for heating, for light, for anything.
1: Let's talk about the Bullet Center because it's a brilliant example of this working in real life, an office building, six stories.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic building and it was a real pleasure to be involved in that project. And the Bullet Center is in Seattle, Washington. Um, We believe it's the most energy efficient office building in the world. And it generates more energy than it than it uses on an annual basis with solar in the least sunny city in the United States. I mean, all, so, but
1: also all the solar panels are on the roof, which is quite a small, are. relatively speaking, footprint. And what you've yeah. done is... You talk about, I love, I've watched a speech that you gave about this online, we'll share a link, and you talked about working backwards and saying, okay, we need to understand what our budget is for this before we design it. And that's not how we normally do stuff. We normally design whatever we want and then see what the impacts are later. That's
0: right. Well, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's kind of inherent in the philosophy of the Living Building Challenge is the idea that we have to respect limits and as a species, we have forgotten the notion of limits. We use our technologies to break through limits at great peril, whereas every other species kind of has to stick to what food is available, what energy is available, what water is available. We cheat, but it's catching up to us. And so the living building... Yeah, you can't get away with it. Yeah, you can't, not for long anyway. And, you know, the living building challenge says start with what you can harness Basically, whether it's energy or water, etc., and build within those limits. That's all you get.
1: So, in this case, you're saying, well, actually, we've only got this amount of space on the roof. Therefore, we need to. And in the end, it was eighty percent more. Efficient we had to than just make the building.
0: Buildings. Yeah, if we wanted to build the six-story building, we had to make it super efficient. We had to rethink everything, and that's what the team did.
1: You said in that speech, "It depends where you are, because if you're in the desert, you've got to think like a cactus."
0: That's right. And that's, again, part of the philosophy is that we build our cities the the same everywhere in the world. And we build our buildings the same regardless of the... Without
1: thinking about what the environment around them is. Right. That's
0: because we're cheating, right? We're using energy as a crutch. And uh, it's caused all the problems we have with climate change and
1: and everything else. Mm, But back on the bullet Center, you've got not only this remarkable energy efficiency in the space in terms of the solar panels and what, dealing with the lights, I guess? I mean, what's that for? Because it's not for heating because you've built a building that can pretty much deal with its surroundings in order to heat and cool itself, right?
0: Yeah, the, the building is very much alive in many ways. There's sensors throughout the building. I like um, that you say it alive. Yeah, it, and it, it's interesting because aesthetically, it looks pretty mechanistic aesthetically, but it actually behaves very differently. It's always responding to something, the temperature, uh, humidity, light levels. And doing something about it. And so windows open and close automatically, lights go up and down, the heating in the floor, you know, comes on, etc. And these, you know, blinds, external blinds deploy to block out when it's too much sun, etc. And the idea is to create, kind of like our bodies, are always trying to create a condition inside that is ideal for our survival and that's what the bullet center is trying to do to itself as well and it uses a tiny amount of energy because of that
1: but when people queued around the block to see this office building yeah. and you remark that it's not a museum yeah <laughs> it's not a very exciting yeah. building if you think about its functionality that's it's, an it's just office an office, space. office building
0: there's nothing special about what happens inside
1: but they queued because they wanted to see the composting toilets which are on six floors and yeah. require no water and sewerage output connection to the mains
0: that's correct yeah the, the biggest thing people want to see when they come to the bullet Center are the toilets which is funny <laughs> I think yeah in the end we're obsessed with potty <laughs> jokes and such things
1: but there. it's amazing how you've managed to do that so you're well, not connected to the not, main sewage yeah, it's
0: not yeah the technology uh, has been around for a while uh, composting toilets but they used to be pretty clunky they're getting better I'm still waiting for the IPU to be invented <laughs> I really, that's my challenge to uh, the industry. I want the sexiest composting toilet in the world designed, something that like Apple would design so that everyone is demanding a composting toilet.
1: Bill Gates is demanding a composting toilet.
0: Bill just watched Gates the documentary is, about yeah, him. He's, he's work, really obsessed
1: yeah. with basically yeah. his next great challenge is try to his figure poop. out... Yeah,
0: for developing countries in particular. Yeah, but I, I think it needs to be for everyone. We need to move away from this sort of Victorian notion of shitting in our water supply and then get it, trying to then use tons of energy to get it back out.
1: It actually doesn't make any sense, does it? I feel like everything has been pointing me towards toilets recently. I just keep (laughs) watching all this stuff, like documentaries and I don't know, and it feels like this is the great undiscussed It is. Because it's disgusting, see what I did there? But we actually (laughs) do. you wanted shit jokes, I got some. Yeah, I've just been with my father-in-law all day. I've got there them at go. my fingertips. But this is fundamental stuff. It's how we live and how the way we live impacts on our environment. And I mean, looking at that, Bill Gates doco if you are not privileged enough to have this stuff whisked away, then it's impacts are writ large on your the health of your kids, whether or not you can go outside your house without vomiting. You know, this That's stuff right. is we don't have to think about it when it's taken away from us, is what I'm saying.
0: That's when the whole that was the whole point. Out of sight, out us. of mind. And this idea that there is no away, but but we designed our cities like yeah. You just our waste is away, and usually the away was to some community that was poorer than ours, and browner than ours. To be real about it, and you know, and the environment. So we send whether it's our trash, our waste, or you know everything else. We push it away.
1: It's back to what we were talking about before with regards to just, isn't
0: it? Absolutely. This is exactly why social justice fits into this equation.
1: Do you think if you were to be interviewed again by that journal I mentioned at the start when they said, you know, what was it like when you started and how has it changed and what did regenerative design look like then versus now? What do you think about the future? Are we at a stage where conventional architects are going to start looking at this stuff?
0: Well, I think conventional architects are, are starting to think about it, but they don't yet know how to do it. Some are learning. The clients are not there yet in terms of real numbers, which is why our buildings are still the way they are for the most part. But what has changed is we've been building these examples like the Bullet Center that you mentioned and others, and each one we build is sort of proof of concept yeah. that this is possible now. We don't need new technologies. We have all the technology that we need, and we, we have the know-how. There's enough of us now that know how to do this um, the
1: solutions are there. The
0: solutions are there and the know-how's there, but what hasn't been there is the will.
1: You talked before about make the party, so brilliant, everyone wants to come to it.
0: That's the idea. That's why we're building these things. They're like little parties. <laughs> Let's talk about
1: some in the region in which we find ourselves right now. So there is an amazing building, which is the Tuho Tribal Parliament in New Zealand. There is. That's Completed a fantastic in project. 2017?
0: Yes, I think that's right.
1: The architect was... 82, I think when he started working on this and he's since passed away, his name was Ivan Mersep. Yeah. But tell us about that building because it's a community building.
0: Yeah, well, and I got to meet Ivan and, and participate in a couple early charrettes with uh, Jasmax as the architects. And Ivan was their senior designer on the project, really wonderful guy. And he didn't get to see it built. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm. So it wasn't finished uh, completely.
1: But there's something um, quite lovely about this being a parliament building, a community building about culture.
0: Yeah, It uh, so the Tuhoi um, is a tribe on the North Island, and um, they had an opportunity to build this facility. And they heard of the, the Living Building Challenge, or was introduced to them, and they felt like it was a perfect alignment with their values and their, their philosophy in terms of their... Sort of living in the land and their connection to place, and so when they heard about it, they're like, "Well, yeah, that's what we need to do. We, you know, we have to build a living building." And uh, for them, it was then a real journey of discovering, "Well, how should they do that? And what should they build it out of? And what should it look like and feel like?" And and they did it, and um, it's a fantastic building, and uh, was featured in a um, feature-length documentary called "Ever the Land." Ah, oh, really? Yeah. So people want to yeah share link. It's a a great film. And um, it captures sort of the whole story of that, that project.
1: What I loved about that building is that it's really colourful and it looks very distinctive. And it reminded me of something I heard you say, which was it's not about a universal aesthetic. This is about ideas and systems. It's not about just overlaying something that looks the same in That's every right. case. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it, in that way, it's kind of freeing to the design community to figure out their expression. Which is the way it should be. Mm. It's a, you know, it, I would assume it's the same for fashion. You don't want everyone looking the same the whole time.
1: Absolutely not. But then there's something in, and not to be slagging off Buckminster Fuller, but there's something in the geodesic dome, which is like if you like that, good, you're ready to go. If you don't, it doesn't work for you. That's right. But you're yeah, I'm not a big are...
0: fan of the aesthetic of geodesic right. domes myself.
1: But if you're not, you can't do it. That's Whereas right. this is not about that.
0: Yeah, no, it's this is about a philosophy and it's about an approach, and an impact a positive impact on the world. It's not about style or form
1: or functionality because no, that's um, right. in terms of what the building's uses.
0: It's about how you do what you do.
1: There's one that you shared a picture of. I'd love to go see it and it's funny that I'd like to go and investigate some more shit in this discussion. There you but go. There's a sewage plant. Oh yeah, in... my old firm
0: designed this wonderful it? uh it's uh, in Rhinebeck, New York, which is upstate New York. Um not in the city of New York outside and it's a sewage treatment plant. Um, But
1: it's so gorgeous.
0: It's a beautiful beautiful (laughs) building and it doesn't use it so it's again it's a living building so it uses only solar energy for all powering all the pumps and aerators and inside the building is something called a living machine and it basically it's a wetland system where the microorganisms see the poop as food and clean it. And so it doesn't use chemicals to do so, it uses nature. And it cleans the water and it works and it supports a whole campus and it's a really great project.
1: What I find most delightful about that is that the building itself looks so lovely in a picture and there's something about the delighting the eye aspect of this that I think catches people's imagination.
0: Well, beauty is important and this gets back to the... The philosophy again is that if none of this will work if people hate it if they if they don't love something they don't take care of it they don't honor it and respect it um and they certainly won't gravitate towards the ideas and so the living building challenge was the first green building system to actually say design and beauty matters and it has to also be part of the the whole sort of philosophy and i think it's in many ways one of the most important because it it touches on the, the idea that wherever people are involved, their emotions are involved and their emotions have to be utilized, mm. <laughs> if that makes sense.
1: That also reminds me, this, listening to your talk there, I was thinking about yesterday, the symposium was opened by an indigenous Australian whose name is Uncle Ken Canning. He's a poet and an activist. It was just really powerful to be able to ground what we were doing in First Nations knowledge. Yeah. And also he's a fab speaker and just kind of a cool dude. Mm-hmm. But... He shared this idea when he was asked, what can we do more broadly about the climate challenge? And he said, one thing we could do is listen more to our elders. And he also said, not just indigenous elders, although, of course, the context was about their rich, rich, rich wealth of wisdom. But he said, all of our older people, we just don't listen and take the time to listen to those who've gone earlier than us. Yeah, that Or walk true. through this earlier than yeah. us.
0: we, uh, As soon as people hit 65 or definitely by 70, they're invisible In society often.
1: Not Jane Fonda. I just say that because we started off talking about that. timeless (laughs)
0: though.
1: Before we we started recording, we are talking about Jane Fonda being an activist and getting arrested, which is awesome of her. Yeah. But there is a serious point to this. Jason, who were the elders in your life that shaped your wisdom?
0: Oh, well, I was blessed to have lots of mentors and um, lots of people that I listened to. I I grew up in a, a family that had a lot of really powerful women. And powerful, I mean, in terms of their love and their support and their ideas. You're Canadian. I, I'm Canadian. And uh, I had both my, my grandmother, but several of my mother's sisters that were older sisters to her. So I had like several grandmothers basically. And they really taught me a lot, as did my father. Um, and did you grow up
1: in a mining community? I did.
0: I grew up in a, in a mining community called Sudbury, a very polluted place. So Ontario. What, Ontario. Yeah, I mean, a tough place, a tough place, yeah, sure. Not as tough now as it used to be, but uh, yeah, it was a hard drinking hockey town,
1: right? That's why you're sweary,
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess you so. Sworn I'm just yet. uncivilized, I guess. <laughs> Not so. really,
1: you. you are given to a bit of effing and blinding. What did your father do?
0: Uh, he was a teacher, yeah, he uh, worked at a, a college in Sudbury and great guy.
1: So what did those women who were strong and inspiring around you teach you?
0: They definitely taught me the love part and uh, love of nature and love of life and family. And, uh, you know, they encouraged the creative side in me. And then when I, when I, uh, went to college and then graduated, I ended up working with another great mentor. Um, his name was Bob Berkebile and Bob was a great name, great name. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh,
1: these he, people sound like storybook heroes. Buckminster Fuller. Yes,
0: well, Bob Berkebile or Buckminster Fuller. And um, we were just joking about that earlier. But Bob uh, is this wonderful little Buddha of a man um, and great architect um, and great mentor. And he was a student of Buckminster Fuller's. And so an interesting sort of lineage there.
1: What um, did he teach you?
0: Well, he taught me how to be an architect. I think he taught me really how to communicate in terms of I mean my my parents were good communicators and my father in particular um, but Bob taught me how to use it professionally.
1: But what drew you to buildings?
0: Well I you know it's hard to say. Didn't want to go down the mine? No I didn't want to be a miner that definitely was not in the cards I did have miners in my family though. No I. But what
1: about architecture was there something about building your own house that inspired you or what was it? Originally, well, as a kid,
0: I started. I was drawing, doodling buildings from a young age, drawing, you know, castles and buildings from a young age. Um, so there's a story I tell that you know I grew up in a mining town that was really polluted, and in the 1970s there was a giant regreening campaign that started, and eventually won in the United Nations. Like an Earth Day thing. Like, well. Yeah, uh, it was like a, and it was eventually won a United Nations commendation because it was one of the most massive tree planting campaigns anywhere, and literally the whole community was terraformed from the nineteen seventies till today.
1: So you were a kid and you saw this.
0: So I participated. Yeah, I planted tons of trees and and everything, and um, and it it really. Uh, you know, basically help heal my community, and as we all did.
1: Oh, but and, isn't it interesting, like, yeah. first-hand experience of regeneration? Yeah. No, that's
0: what got me on the whole system. It's why I'm an environmentalist, is because I grew up in a polluted place that we healed. And that taught me that we can either be agents of destruction or agents of regeneration. And it just matters whether we care enough, whether we love enough. And that's what got it. And then the reason I became an architect is also related to this story and I think you'll like this part of the story is a developer came along when I was of a certain age and bought up this hillside that my friends and I had planted trees on and helped to heal and the first thing he did was he cut down all the trees that he planted and then he
1: um, oh that feels personal
0: yeah it was personal and then he took a bunch of dynamite and blew up the rock that was unique in the world and put in a parking lot and a big box store to sell shit from China to our community And it was like someone drove a knife in my gut because I played in those hills and helped heal those hills. And then I saw how quickly development undermined the intention that we provided. And so I realized that design, I didn't have the language to describe it at that age, but intuitively I realized that we had to design our cities differently and our buildings differently to avoid that kind of careless outcome. And it wasn't that this developer was was evil, it was just the same they, everywhere. But it's the system, yeah. back to broken right. system, it's just how That's it was right. done. So, and still is done. So my hometown started both my environmentalism and my career by showing me what not to do.
1: <laughs> what drove you into leadership? You said to me the other day, people thought you were crazy when you started to write the original document that became the Living Building Challenge, and you left your job mm-hmm. and decided to go and follow this crazy dream. I did. You also, in your presentation, showed a picture of Greta Thunberg and talked about how leadership can be lonely. But She's then... my hero. <laughs> Me too. I wish she would won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. It's lonely when you are a pioneer in whatever field, and I'm sure that many listeners would relate to this in their own fields, when you're trying to do something big or small, but it's you're an early adopter, it feels lonely because you're not you know you're setting the, the trend or trying to build it and you have to wait for those to come along
0: well i think i i had the right support from people
1: i just um, actually i'm going to answer it for you yeah no you answer no, it go i just realized no, what the it, answer was
0: <laughs> you tell me
1: you're a troublemaker
0: i am a troublemaker absolutely but i also felt like i the people some people have my back and that's important it's easier to stick your neck out if somebody has your back
1: Right. But there's something about being willing to just do it. Yeah,
0: I'm a shit disturber, I guess. I don't know, but when I... I have a hard time not saying something when something's not right. And I have a hard time also not trying to fix it. Like, if it hasn't been created, well, then fuck, I'm going to take a stab at it. And not that I'm going to get it right, necessarily, but it's better to be on the right path than not do anything at all
1: your kids are lucky how old are they
0: <laughs> uh well they're different ages they they range from 11 which my daughter is my youngest and when we only have three boys and ascending ages <laughs> i ask you that because i'd like
1: to finish up on that just because i asked you what your elders taught you what you were like as a kid i want to bring this back to the house that you built and I wonder if you could tell us, (laughs) just tell us a little bit about the house that you built, and then finish by describing your front door.
0: Well, the house is called Heron Hall, which is named after the the herons that live next to the house. Um, We have this beautiful estuary next to us, and there's herons, and I was always a fan of Wind in the Willows with Toad Hall. Same. And um, so I thought that my kids should live in a magical home that's named after, you know, So that's where the name came from. But it's a localist house. By that, like, you think about local food, where you're trying to source all your ingredients from close at hand. So the idea was I tried to get everything from really close. So we milled wood on my site, and we built the walls out of rammed earth, and, and then we Collected tons of salvaged materials from different places.
1: Amazing windows.
0: Amazing stuff. Yeah, it wasn't like I took ugly stuff. I went purposefully to find things that had been discarded that were also had character. Sometimes you had to clean them up or repaint them or fix them, but were beautiful. And then I call it salvage modernism because you, you then integrate it in a way that it is still modern and fresh, But that it has, you can't really tell how old the building is when you walk into it because it has this patina and these things that have a range of ages. And um, so the house is this eclectic, modern solar farmhouse, and it runs off the sun, and it has composting toilets. Uh, It's off the water grid. It uses only rainwater for all of the water. And if I can say so, it's beautiful. And people come there and go, wow. And that's what I wanted and to show that you can have a, a home that's free of redless chemicals, that's tied to the place that it's in, built with care and love and craftsmanship and, and yet its environmental footprint is incredibly small, in fact, that creates the site, creates habitat for other species and it's a lovely place for kids to grow
1: up. <laughs> but the door yes. came from a department store... See, we're talking about fashion. Yes, And had been used of. as an installation. <laughs> which store? Barneys or something?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure which one exactly Some fancy department store. We don't, yeah, we don't need to shame and name them, but uh, it was, from what I understood, it was a, a hand-carved door in Afghanistan. Beautiful inlays with flowers and all these sort of things, hours somebody spent or people spent. And then it was imported over... To the states at some point and used in a retail display, and then it was discarded when the time was over, which is like you know, a shockingly you know bad thing to do.
1: But it's so but very common. ordinary. This is what we do in fashion and in yes. retail and in With sets marketing and, and in film and in all film, sorts. Film exactly. Mm-hmm. So no one wanted what's basically a masterpiece of gorgeous woodwork yes, with history uh, yeah. and patina and everything you say, but it wasn't the right size to be your door.
0: Yeah, so I, anyway, I found it in a salvage yard, and it was a very, a very old artifact, and the people were a lot smaller, and so I'm 6'2", and I think it you know, was 5 feet tall. So it didn't <laughs> quite work, so I had to build a plinth where it would sit on, and then to fill the gap... I created a kick plate out of rusted metal um, and it says all that can save us is a sustained awakening of the human heart.
1: And And that's what your kids see whenever they come home. Yeah,
0: I wanted to sort of drill it into their head subconsciously. Every day when they come home from school, they see this sign and and, um, hopefully it gets them to think about loving more deeply.
1: Jason, you are delightful. I love deeply that we had this podcast and made it happen. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun.
1: Ah. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there, and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode, and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my friend.